Comrades, you are listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This show is Good Morning Comrades. Jeff and Scott from the crew here today. Uh, we also have uh, Ben Burgess, returning champion. Uh, he is, uh, you're in, at the University of uh, Georgia at, at Athens? Is that what is it? Uh, no, I'm at uh, Georgia State University. Georgia State, so uh, the campus that I teach at is. Um, Perimeter College, which is Perimeter like uh, affiliated with GSU, so I'm at a campus in like the kind of near northern suburbs of Atlanta. Yeah, sorry, I bungled that one, but uh, anyway, uh, no worries. It's great to have you back. Uh, ben. It's all online now, anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, lucky for lucky for you, it's online because I know you were very concerned about the the situation. Maybe we can get into that first. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about on this show. Uh, and I've been doing a lot of sort of work around not returning to school in a mm. in an unsafe environment. Uh, I myself am a, a grade school teacher. I teach fourth and fifth grade special education, uh, and w- w- there's been a lot of energy uh, behind making sure that we go 100% virtual. And uh, I guess so. So you've gotten to that point. Uh, how is that sort of was, did that sort of work out uh, with your your college and uh, your situation? Yeah, so they originally went online, um, well, right after spring break, basically. Um, they were they were really dragging their feet on it, and um, it's, you know, it's Georgia, so it's not unionized, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which obviously, you know, makes a difference. Not yet. Uh, not yet. No, that's that's true. Actually, there is a, uh, there is actually a union affiliated with the, uh, the CWA that's trying to organize the campus but it's it's early days yet right you know so there's certainly no like collective bargaining process set up but um you know uh, i joined if anybody is uh uh if anybody is listening to this uh who who works for georgia state university maybe we could put a, a link to the union membership form in the show notes or something sure but, uh <laughs> you know but uh but in any case, you know, because there's no collective bargaining process set up or anything, plus it's in Georgia, so uh, our governor, Brian Kemp, is a lunatic. Uh, like, he, he literally claimed in, like, April, I think, that he'd only just the day before found out that viruses can spread asymptomatically. Like, his, his story is that he didn't know that. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this guy's in charge of an so, entire state. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also his office is like 20 minutes away from the national headquarters of the CDC. So <laughs> if he really wanted to find this out, I'll bet he could find somebody to explain it to him. Um, but but yeah, so uh, at Georgia reopened so early that even even Trump criticized them for it at the time. Uh, like it's, it's just insane and bizarre. So of course, there's all kinds of political pressure on the university system there to uh, go back face to face. And right now they're still claiming they're going to do it uh they're the official plan like originally it was going to be like if you taught a monday wednesday class uh half the class would show up on monday and half the class would show up on a wednesday 
and then a bunch of everybody's learning would be online. That was mm-hmm. that was supposed to be the compromise, so that there'd be fewer people there. Then they kind of had to admit that even with only half capacity, um, there were still a lot of those classrooms where it just wouldn't be physically possible to seat everybody six feet apart. Right. Uh, so the new plan is that every student is going to come to each class once every two weeks. So it's going to be like a quarter of the class every time. And we'll see how that long that lasts. I strongly suspect that like within two weeks, uh, the whole thing will be back online after the semester started. There have been other universities that have been in that situation. But meanwhile, um, all I could say is that uh, because um, the uh, the CDC guidelines uh, have, you know, have a BMI threshold in them. So never have I been so happy to have to lose <laughs> some weight, you know, because <laughs> uh, I officially qualify, you know, for the, uh, you know, for, for one of the high risk categories, you know, it's like, um, well, congratulations you know, like to going, you. Go, yeah, it's like going to the family doctor to come up with a note so you don't have to go to Vietnam. Right. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> your, that's, that's your bone spurs. That's right. That's right. That's my bone spurs. <laughs> it is pretty bizarre, like going to school in like national tra- like like Pandemic, disasters yeah. like this because like my senior year was the year Katrina hit and like yeah. I had a lot of like going from going to different schools and like coming back to home and like dealing with a bunch of like trailer learning and stuff. Yeah. He, yeah. he, he graduated from the one and only St. Bernard unified school where they just consolidated every single school in our parish. We were from the same place, like right outside of new Orleans and, and they just took all of the schools and just slammed them into one mega school. Yeah. They were, they were just like passing out degrees. Like, <laughs> like we needed to make look good. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're um, you're in a, in a better teaching situation and, and it's going to be much safer. Yeah, it, uh, it really is wild how there's this constant sort of um, obsession, I would say, to just pretend that this like pandemic isn't happening or it's a minor inconvenience. And it's it's really, really makes you feel like you're the crazy one. Like if you're not talking to other people who agree with you, like you could just yeah. I can see how it would be a way to just sort of like sort of spellbound you and make you feel like you're on an island when there's so much of this. I mean, I don't want to use the word gaslighting, but it certainly feels like it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a overused word in political context, but God, the uh, the denial of like obvious reality is severe with this stuff. Mm. Like, especially, um, you know, like I don't know the idea that it would even be possible to to teach in a safe way like under, under these circumstances is just beyond bizarre. Um, like, like nobody's ever, like nobody's ever supposed to walk up next to you. You know, you're of course, you know, you're in a classroom, so it's enclosed air. Mm-hmm. I actually had a friend who teaches at a um, college in New York uh, who uh, like his college, like upstate, you know, and his college uh, finally did relent, you know, at the last minute, but um for a while they were like talking about like, okay, maybe we can like teach under a tarp outside, you know, like to make this work. It's like, Jesus guys, just don't. I keep seeing these classrooms uh, in like on Facebook pictures or in articles and all these things with plexiglass, like around the kid's desk and like the teacher standing behind plexiglass and having that be the sort of situation where like, like, you know, elementary school educators are expected to teach and it's just sort of like why are we doing this i mean like i i am, that's a, go ahead yeah no that's a couple levels more insane too because uh i mean the best meme i saw about this was like not only is it like 
a sign that you've never interacted with children if you think they're going to follow social distancing mm-hmm. guidelines, but it's a sign that you've never interacted with children if you don't think that they're going to lick their hands and run around chasing each other yeah. saying, Corona! Yeah, you got it. Um, and, you know, just to sort of like put a bow on this point, um, like when when you and Adam had a discussion about this on your uh, show, The Dead Pundit Society, and I was listening to that, and I thought he made a really good point. And I've been telling this to people as well that uh, when like the idea of working from home is more like living at work. I think it was either you exactly. or he made that. And, I, I think that was added, but yeah, it's, a, it's exactly right. And I'm in the situation where I choose that. I choose to live at work rather than go like, if that, if that's possible. I, that I will like go out and I will like be a part of a rally at the administration building to say make my life miserable that way instead of make my life miserable in the way that I can like ex- continue to spread this pandemic and possibly infect my family and you know fam- I mean the children yeah. as well. It's, it's- yeah. I mean, look the uh, yeah. I mean, working from home right yeah. is is certainly no treat. Uh, actually. One of the first Jacobin pieces I wrote after the lockdown was about um, the kind of amping up of uh, employer surveillance, essentially, uh, after uh, after so many you know white collar workers were sent home, mm-hmm. that people would make their employees load up their computers with spyware to make sure they were really working the whole time, yeah. uh, just do insane things like uh, demand that that um, that. Uh, employees like log into a zoom meeting and just stay logged in all the day all day so they can be monitored uh so obviously you know there there are some, you know there's definitely some issues there oh yeah but uh but it's it's still you know and and nobody should take any of that stuff lying down no, but you know it's it's, it's it's still better than actually being asked to go into work in a plague zone yeah totally um, I wanted to get into um, some uh, uh, basically a recent interview on your new show, which you just re- uh, really uh, started releasing. Uh, you now have a podcast called Give Them an Argument, which is the same name as your book, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. Uh, you, you. And you can um, essentially, you had a really great interview about an, uh, with, with Michael Powell, uh, who mm-hmm. is a, he's a New York Times uh, writer. And you and he talked about an article that he wrote uh, about Adolph Reed and what happened with him uh, and the New York City DSA. Can you just sort of run down a little bit of sure. that? Yeah. So uh, obviously, you know, DSA is the largest socialist organization in the country. So Adolf Reed uh, has, has been a pretty prominent uh, socialist scholar uh, for, for decades, right? Um, so... You know, he's a black Marxist academic. Uh, he's written a lot about uh, the history of uh, the move, both the movement against uh, segregation, you know, in, in the first part of the 20th century. I mean, he uh, actually he grew up in uh, in New Orleans mm-hmm. uh, in that era. Um, oh, we've met where we're, we're, uh, we're, we've met. He's actually done a couple of events. He's great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, he has a really good article. Uh, blanket of the title, but I, I liked it a lot. Uh, that was written a few years ago about the um, uh, efforts to uh, take down Confederate statues. Uh, yeah, uh, in, in New Orleans. That anyway, I'd, I'd really recommend that people check that out. But yeah, I'd like to hear uh, more about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, he goes through uh, in the article, like most of it is kind of going through the history of how of how the statues first came up and and kind of you know demolishing the 
the rationalizations, you know, that, that people, that people make to, uh, to keep them up. Um, and, and, you know, really demonstrating that this was not, uh, you know, this, this, this wasn't about like, I don't know, like families of, you know, Confederate war dead remembering them or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Like this, this, this was like a, a much later, um, statement right you know like like a you know like a white supremacist anti-civil rights gesture you mm -hmm. know uh putting up these statues in the first place okay yeah it's called uh monumental rubbish yeah i mean uh, that just shows yeah. a lot of these people they were like uh well if i just put this big brass statue there or if i put it really really high they'll never be able to take it down <laughs> if that's why they can't take it down i'll just be like because you can't do nothing about it <laughs> yeah. and then they started being able to do something about it and everybody's like wait no <laughs> yeah absolutely right so so it's a really nice essay because he both goes through all this history uh explains why they should be taken down but he also does what he's very good at which which is kind of taking um like sort of taking the discussion from the realm of these symbolic issues to to sort of bigger underlying issues right you know like 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 uh you know, like he he talks, even though it's not really what the essay is about, right? You know, he talks in there about like how um, obviously we shouldn't have you know the statues of 19th century supervillains, but <laughs> if you really want to um, to do something to to address uh, the um, you know to address like uh, unequal you know inequality. Um, you know, that, that, that afflicts, you know, black people in New Orleans, like really like, like unionizing the hospitality industry mm -hmm. and, you know, things like this, you know, uh, would, would be the way to go. Right. And it's a good, it's a bad essay. I think if, for anybody who's never read, uh, read any Adolf Reed, right. That'd be like a really good entry point. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he's, he's written stuff like this for a very long time. Uh, and so, and, you know, uh, Cornell West, uh, in the Michael Powell article, in the New York times, Cornell West is quoted calling him the, uh, uh, you know, something like the greatest democratic theorist, you know, of the yeah. last few decades. So, so this is a guy who's, who's this kind of like, um, you know, monster of, you know, socialist scholarship, you know, so of course it makes perfect sense that he would be invited to speak uh, at a DSA meeting. And the particular thing he was going to talk about this in this event, right. It's going to be on zoom, of course, you know, because of the pandemic uh, was uh, going to be, uh, the coronavirus and the way that it's um, and the racial disparities in coronavirus deaths mm -hmm. uh, and the the core point uh, that he was making, you know, there he's going to make it his talk. But, you know, he like had an article, he had a common dreams article about this. Mm -hmm. You can read where, you know, he makes the the argument there that he was going to make in the talk uh, is that the we've been talking about these racial disparities, in the coronavirus deaths in the wrong way. Uh, and the thing that he objects to is too many people not really making the link between the disparities and poverty. In other words, uh, the suggestion sometimes people say, oh, we really need to look at, you know, why this is killing, you know, so many more black people than white people, uh, where the implication is almost that like, oh, maybe there's like some genetic explanation or something like that. Uh, and and his his point is, of course, OK, this is absurd. Uh, this is actually really dangerous um, because this is a sort of way to like, it's, it's, it's almost like race science, right. You know, like, because once, if you believe uh, which you should, that, uh, that race is a largely made up category, right. You know, that like, 
yeah, in biological terms, you know, it's it's more or less meaningless, right? You know, you can have some clusters of, you know, of, um, you know, genetic propensities for some things that are, that maybe sometimes roughly align with what we call race. But by and large, this is a way of sorting people that has much more to do with um, historical systems of oppression than anything that has anything to do with genetics or biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they... Uh, genetic differences among so-called races are much greater than between them. Uh, And which again, this is like pretty just basic, like, you know, about science and you're not a racist stuff. Right. Uh, You know, like that, that part shouldn't be controversial. Uh, But, but his point is, you know, that he objects to what he calls like disparity ideology, uh, both because um, that it can lead to this kind of like racialized view about medicine. That's just could be, like bad and reactionary and scientifically unhelpful. And also uh, because it misses the real point, right? The, the reason that black people are so much more likely than white people to die of the coronavirus is that black people are so much more likely to live in poverty than white people uh, because of the historical effects of slavery and Jim Crow and FHA redlining and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And realizing that is actually politically important because uh, the the takeaway is different, right? In other words, instead of instead of saying like, okay, we have this like racially specific problem and we need to look for some sort of racially targeted solution, said no, the problem is poverty, mm-hmm. and of course, because of America's history of de jure racial apartheid, that falls you know much more heavily on black people than white people, but the poverty is the problem, right? You know, right. like, like, like that's, that's the actual issue that you need to address. Right. They're not more biologically um, predisposed to poverty. They're socially predisposed to, pol- um, to poverty because of the uh, racial uh, historical context that existed. Exactly. And that led exactly. to the point. Yeah, totally. Right. And, and so, uh, and so once you, you realize that, right. Uh, that the solution, you know, what you need to do to look for ways to solve this problem uh, is to find ways uh, to to get poor black people and poor white people and poor people of other backgrounds uh, to uh, to unite to to try to do something you know to to about economic inequality right mm-hmm. that's the actual issue it's a class it's, um, it's a class situation that get cuts across race and and part of the critique that that sort of leads to what happened with with uh dsa which we'll get to in just one moment um yeah. is there there's there's a um sort of an effort to sort of call that kind of thinking race reductionist one second really quick so i pause for station id are uh, you listening to whiv lp new orleans 102.3 uh jeff and scott with ben burgess uh we're talking about uh adolf reed's um sort of perspective on race and we're about to get on to the idea of uh class reductionism or the sort of epithet of that being thrown at people who think uh in terms of of working across um these races or, or these differences that are are like like we were just saying socially uh constructed which isn't which doesn't mean nothing it doesn't mean it, it, that is meaningless it's very significant in the perspective that that this is how people have, have um been sort of socialized and and how sort of wealth has sort of been distributed over over you know multiple generations and so we were going to get into what is a class reductionist exactly and what why do people why do people think that that's bad yeah so so to bring it it back to read Mm -hmm. uh the long and short of it is that this talk that he was supposed to give to to dsa 
uh, was canceled, and mm-hmm. and there's some there's some he said he said she said about the details that get tedious, but I think that what everybody could agree on is that it was canceled in a context where there was enough controversy, there's enough opposition to doing this talk at this time, uh, that that it it had kind of become toxic, right? Yeah. You know that uh, so uh, the talk itself uh, was supposed to be co-sponsored by the lower Manhattan and Philadelphia branches of DSA. Uh, and it had at one time been promoted by uh, New York city DSA as a whole. And then the, the leadership body of New York city DSA kind of took a vote and disassociated itself from the event. And mm-hmm. uh, there was some concern, you know, this was months ago when uh, people weren't as good at, you know, at uh, figuring out how to use zoom as they are now. Right. Uh, everybody had a lot less practice, you know, there was concern about, uh, like Zoom bombing, you know that that that, that there would be people who could be disruptive. Uh, is that kind so, of the bomb so, threat? What's that? Is that kind of the bomb yeah, threat? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so eventually, uh, Reed and the remaining organizers just kind of decided, you know, that's like, all right, let's. This yeah. is just not worth it. Right? Yeah, juice you know, isn't worth the squeeze here. Um, and what the uh, what the Michael Powell article in the New York Times. Um, you know, which I thought was very good, uh, is about, uh, and, and what I think is most interesting, you know, beyond the kind of particulars of like the lead up to the cancellation of this talk, um, is beyond a sort of larger issue that you could raise that I think we should also, you know, mm-hmm. like is also important, right? About like having a sort of uh, culture of hashing out internal differences in the left in this kind of hyper-moralized and unhelpful way, right? You mm-hmm. know, like, so that's also an issue. But the main thing here is the underlying charge against Reed, which was that he's being a class reductionist. Uh, now, uh, if we're going to play this game, I think that there's something very ironic about um, a uh, black man who grew up in the Jim Crow South uh, being accused by you know, let's be honest, mostly white people uh, of, of not understanding that race is important. Uh, that's, that's, that's a, that's an odd, it's a bit you know, that's an odd develop development. Right. You know, but, uh, but I, I think that rather than sort of just dismissing it that way, it's also important to get into like the underlying issue, right? Like, okay, sure. So that would be odd and ironic, but who knows, maybe they're right. Right. Are they? So, um, so class reductionism is it's a little bit vague, but like when people throw around this accusation, the charge seems to be that you only care about economics, or you think the left should only care about economics, and you're kind of dismissive of, or you tend to downplay the importance of everything else, right? Um, and, By the way, I've never seen Reed do that. I've never actually seen an instance of that being the case. No, no, I've absolutely never seen him do that. Uh, I've, in fact, if you read his his article about this topic in the New Republic, mm-hmm. uh, Myth of Class Reductionism, um, he's at pains to say, yeah, racism and sexism and homophobia and all these things certainly persist and they certainly cause harm, right? That's what I'm saying is not to deny that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like like that, that should just go without saying. Uh what, what he is saying uh, and, and what other people, uh, you know, often other, you know, black socialist scholars with a similar perspective, you know, um, you know, Cedric Johnson, uh, Walter Ben Michaels, mm-hmm. uh, a few other people who, who have a similar critique is that it's a mistake to, to think about this stuff as if 
there's this like social force called like race and the social force called gender. Mm-hmm. And then there's class. And these are all basically separate things that just sort of intersect as they bump into each other, mm-hmm. which is the way that a lot of people on the left think about it. Uh, instead sticking with the race example, both because that's the original context and, and because that's like, uh, probably a good thing to stand in for everything else just because it's so like profoundly important to American history. Uh, I, I think that the the way to think about it instead is that, of course, you know, as socialists, we want equal civic and legal rights for everybody uh, as, as a foundation, right? You know, before we even get into everything else. Uh, and and certainly, if people in positions of power are acting on the basis of racial bias, that violates that, and and, and we should and we should care about that, right? Of course. But uh, what you're oftentimes when people use phrases like like structural racism or systemic racism, what they're really identifying is the way that the economic structure, the way that capitalism, in effect, um, the I'm sure Reed would use much classier metaphors than this, but the uh, the analogy that I, that always comes to my mind is it's like the mosquito at the beginning of Jurassic Park, you know, that's like trapped in you know amber from yeah. Jurassic, you know that that capitalism essentially freezes these uh, distributive patterns uh, as if they were in amber, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, if you sort of say, okay. We're going to have, you know, slavery. We're going to have Jim Crow. We're going to have redlining. And then we'll end all that. But then, like, the the second that's over, yeah, I'll let the chips fall where they may, right? right. You know, then like, you know, like, 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 just let the free market shake out however it's yeah, going every, to. Everything is equal now. We have, we have the vaunted equality of opportunity or whatever that, 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 uh, yeah. that I like to say or, or whatever that is. Uh, and now everything is actually a meritocracy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's measured by where people are at at the end of the day. (laughs) Right, right. And of course, where people uh, are at the beginning of the day is going to be very different because of of these historical injustices uh, and the distribution of poverty, you know, which has obviously been wildly unequally distributed, you know, between white people and black Mm -hmm. people since emancipation uh, is obviously a reflection of that. Uh, But but there, there are two things here, right? So one is what like what would actually be a good strategy for doing anything about this right and and the other uh is um what would count as a win right mm-hmm. you know like what what should, what should we accept uh and all of these things have to do with understanding that you know that what we're talking about right so the primary reason why uh, there's so many, you know, there's such a higher proportion of black people than white people living in poverty uh, is not because of ongoing racial bias. That doesn't mean, of course, racial bias isn't ongoing. It certainly is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not the primary cause. Right. In other words, like the primary cause um, of uh, of the, this 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 income gap, you know, uh, between white people and black people is not stuff like uh, hiring discrimination, for example, right? Which is not to deny that hiring discrimination goes on, right? But it's mm-hmm. not the main cause. The main cause is that um, is that people are in wildly different starting points because of the historical legacy of these mm-hmm. other things, right? So now the question is, what are you going to do about it? Uh, and the the perspective uh, that people like Reed have which is also the perspective 
uh, of a lot of uh, figures, many of whom were socialists in the civil rights movement, uh, people like King, like Bayard Rustin, like a Philip Randolph, uh, is that, all right, we've got this problem of, uh, of black poverty that is that comes about as a result of these you know, historical processes, right? And now what are we going to do about it? Well, one thing you could do would, would for example, to be focused on demand for like racially targeted reparations, uh, but it's going to be very hard to, to put together like a winning coalition for that, right? Mm-hmm. Not people saying some of the right words in a democratic primary for the sake of pandering, but like a, a winning coalition to make it actually happen. And, and there right. is a question That's, also yeah. as well about that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but there's a no, question no, go also for it. Yeah, yeah. In, in terms of... Um, uh, but in terms of giving a lump reparations sum to people that have been mm-hmm. affected, uh, that does nothing to overturn the so the the economic system that currently exists. It it sort of takes for granted that that it's going it's not going to change, and well, but and just sort of like dispersing money to people based off of previously faced harms doesn't over, over, overturn that at all. It, it actually kind of reaffirms. No, it. no, it doesn't. And, and in fact, like the internal logic of the demand in a weird way is kind of. Um, kind of accepts uh, the the basic legitimacy of having a society where wealth and power are distributed this way. In other words, like, like it kind of frames uh, so many black people living in poverty as, as, as like a, uh, as if that's a, uh, you know, an unacceptable deviation from a basically acceptable pattern. Right. And this is the second point I was going to get to, which is what would count as a win. In other words, Let's imagine that uh, I have no idea how this would happen without massive redistribution of wealth, right? You know, right. but like, let's imagine that we somehow did get, um, you know, reparations or some other racially targeted um, uh, program that was somehow enough to correct these imbalances. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and and just and let's just ignore for the sake of the thought experiment all the obvious like political problems with how that would come about. So now imagine that uh, exactly the right proportions of white people and black people for their portions in the general population were living in miserable, grinding poverty, uh, being subject to the kind of aggressive militarized policing that poor neighborhoods in general tend to be subject to, uh, being forced to work during a plague as essential workers, all that stuff. Would we accept that as a just outcome? Mm -hmm. Uh, like if it were even possible politically in the first place, which it's not, but if it were right, you know, would we, would we think, okay, good enough. Right. You know, clearly not. Right. So, uh, so they, so in other words, like trying to do something just about black poverty is both politically, probably not a very promising project and also isn't something we would accept as a just outcome anyway. Right. So, uh, I have a new article uh, about this in uh, in a Substack project edited by Ryan Smith called "The Third Rail." Mm-hmm. Uh, just came out like literally minutes before we started recording. Um, it's called "The Quest for the Mythical Class Reductionist," uh, and and in it, right, the the analogy that I use uh, at at the end, right, you know, so I say, okay, well, like some of the reason that some people might object to to what I'm saying here, right, that like that what we really need is to have a movement of, of poor and working people of all races that would, of course, take racial bias and combat it very seriously, but whose overall project uh, was to um, 
you know, was was to bring about reforms and ultimately structural change that would target poverty and economic inequality in general, right? Mm -hmm. Part of the reason somebody might object to that would be that it is, of course, absolutely true. We should be real about this, that uh, it's not that the fact that uh, there is this racially uneven distribution of, of poverty is a result of slavery and Jim Crow and the rest of those things, right? You know, it's, it's not just random. It's not about individual decisions. It's not about culture or any of that nonsense, right? You know, it's a result of these historical injustices. And so if you're, sa- if you're saying, look, what we need to be targeted is just poverty per se, uh, then some people might hear that and think, okay, well, you're, you're kind of, but you're not really giving its due, mm-hmm. right? These like historically specific things, and the the analogy, which I'm sure is 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 clunky and silly in some ways, but like you know, but but I hope gets across you know the general idea, is imagine that there are ten people who had all been kidnapped by a serial killer and they're being kept in his basement. Mm-hmm. And let's say this particular serial killer really really hated Asian people, and so when possible, you know, those were the people he targeted, and so because he had uh, this bias. Uh, five of the 10 people in the serial killer's basement are Asian. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there are also some white and black people in there too. Maybe we, maybe like one of them was, you know, he had to grab because like that guy was a witness. He saw him grabbing one of the others. Mm-hmm. Maybe a few of the others were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? So it's certainly true that it's not a coincidence that so many of the people in the basement are, are Asians, right? That's right. because of this thing that you should be absolutely real about but also nobody <laughs> should be kept prisoner in a serial killer's basement that's a that's a bad situation for anybody and also um right now everybody who's in the basement right disproportionately asians in this example but everybody who's in the basement needs the same thing which is to get out and everybody's best chance of getting out is to work together with the other people who are trapped there and I think that's how we should be thinking about poverty and economic inequality, that there are absolutely uh, racially specific reasons why members of some groups are more likely to, to be there than members of other groups. Uh, but saying that everybody who's there needs the same thing to get mm-hmm. out and everybody who's there, their best shot of getting out is to work together um, on the basis of shared interests mm-hmm. with everybody else who's in that situation, that's not reducing away all the other historical factors. That's not saying they don't matter. That's not saying that uh, that we should be in denial about them or downplay them, right? That's just like thinking strategically about how to get out of this horrible situation. Yeah. You are listening to WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. Uh, we have Jeff and Scott in the studio with Ben Burgess. Uh, so yeah, that's really, uh, an interesting example. Um, and I guess we can sort of like use that as an opportunity to sort of like change gears a little bit. I did want to talk a little bit about, uh, we have, I had a previous conversation about, uh, making arguments in the past and the uh, Scott, you had a question yeah. for Ben. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. What you said? I don't remember. Oh, okay. okay. Well, um, uh, so I, I guess we talked a little bit in the past about uh, making arguments, and I messaged you as sort of a thing that came up to, uh, before the show. is that, um, One of the things I've noticed is that when you s- engage with someone else's argument, it is often helpful to sort of start to take a good version or a good faith um, 
version of that argument if you're choosing to engage. I'm not saying to engage in every mm. single argument in the of world, course. but when you do so, uh, make sure that you're doing it uh, with at least giving them some you know, credit for what they're saying and that they believe it. And then that gives you an opportunity to, um, to, to work from there. Uh, because you have a point of at least agreement on what the grounds are, even if the the premises are are not something that uh, you you'll your conclusions as opposed to something that you can get to. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think that there's this there's been a, a general trend on parts of the left uh, to dismiss uh, certain disagreements and certain arguments. And also, by the way, like I know you said this, but just to like underline it a couple times sure, and sure, circle sure. it, right? You know, put some stars next to it. Uh, nothing that I I'm saying here is is a recommendation that everybody waste their valuable time uh, engaging with like every single you know debate that anybody ever wants to have about anything. Yeah, right? you don't like, have to. You don't have to talk. You don't have to argue with the white supremacists if you don't want to. Okay, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to argue with the white supremacists. You you, you know you you don't. Uh, like there, there are lots of things that you can make reasonable choices about, like, you know, cause like sometimes like I run into this, people are like, Oh, Hey, you know, I, uh, you know, here you are saying, give them an argument and like, and I'm like screaming at you and you're not engaging with me. What's up with that, bro? You know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not, you know, that's not really what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Like, I think that, I think it's absolutely legitimate. I say this in the book, uh, to, to pick your battles, Right. You know, but um, when you are going to spend your time talking about something, right, like uh, I think that there is a tendency uh, that I think especially uh, on maybe like the more recent and more kind of online, you know, versions of the left uh, to be hyper focused on intentions and motives and who's saying what in good faith. and you can never know that uh, yeah right it's very difficult to actually know that right like 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 maybe sometimes it's just obvious but but like very very often it's not right Mm -hmm. like uh in fact i think most people probably if if they're you listen to this if you've engaged in these things you know you've probably been on both ends of this right Mm -hmm. you know you've probably had people attribute motives to you that, that you know you didn't have right you know uh as well as times that you've you've attributed bad motives to other people, and so the first thing is that it's it's very difficult to actually be sure, right? You know what's what's motivating somebody, whether they're actually operating quote unquote in good faith, uh, but also it's not always even necessarily relevant because uh, if somebody is saying something, you know, in bad faith, in other words, like. Uh, they're pretending that they care about something they don't really care about in order to serve some other agenda, uh, you know, like like a sort of a really clear example of this might be somebody who's like a conservative or a libertarian uh, saying like, oh, um, this or that left wing thing that you support wouldn't actually, you know, yeah, help Medicare for all or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, it would actually be bad for the very people it's supposed to help because of this, that, or the other thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes this reaction, you know, people have to that critique, you know, that I often have, right. You know, like that, that's very natural. I think to have if you're on the left is, Oh, for God's sake. Right. Like, <laughs> like that's not really what's making you tick here. Right. Like it's, you're not 
Like I, 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 I do refuse to take seriously the idea that you're actually against the minimum wage because you're so concerned, yeah. you know, about, uh, you know, some people in the working poor, you know, losing their jobs, you know, as, as a result of it. It's literally and, the and first not- place your brain goes when that argument, when that kind of an argument comes up, it's literally like every single time my brain goes there first and it, yeah, yeah, you sort of like yeah. have to just and, keep composure yeah. almost. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? They just keep saying they're going to replace us with like robots that nobody likes. Oh yeah, that's my favorite. The uh, the, the yeah. fifty the you know if they make fifteen dollars an hour the the minimum wage or whatever they just put a robot in like. Yeah. Uh, I've had two jobs in danger of automation and they're both like really weird. Everybody's always like, "Oh man, like why well, learn to do that job real good? It'll just be done by robots in twenty years." And that's like I hard refuse that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also weird. It's also a weird thing to bring up, like in this context, because, like, do you actually believe that, like, if you accept like uh, a little bit of a lower wage rate, you know, that it's like, oh, you know, that like we that all like like, let's say the premise is true, right? You know, that like that like this job or that job really is going to be completely automated and just done by robots in however many years. I mean, Do you really believe that there's some wage rate that we could accept as human beings that would be so low that we could win a race to the bottom against you know against machines? Right. I, I, I doubt mean, it. Right? Why would I be accepting less money? I need to make more money. I need the big score, baby. Where's the big pizza score? Yeah, well, especially you need you need that money uh, if you're going to lose your job to automation in a few years anyway, right? You need yeah. to save up you know, you before that happens. I need to make the big last heist that makes that I can retire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, like uh, making tinier pizzas and selling them for less. Right, or you can strike <laughs> right. it out on your own and make your own damn pizzas. Yeah. Right, exactly. Right. So, so, so I think it's like very natural that like this is like where your mind maybe goes first, and in that case, or at least a lot of cases, people say that. Right. I think the judgment might even be correct. Right. Like, like, like I think your suspicion. That like oh this is really a rationalization for uh, um, you know this is really a rationalization for something that's 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 really coming from a different place right mm-hmm. like oftentimes yeah it is but that doesn't that's not actually a good reason necessarily to say that you should just dismiss it and not engage with it uh, and and one reason that it's not is that just because somebody has a bad motivation doesn't mean they're not going to persuade anybody. Right. Uh, you know that. And if you're concerned with stopping that, uh, buddy, and you yeah, just hit my, you just hit, you just stepped on my Don Draper trap card. Because <laughs> that's constantly his idea on the show is just like, come up with some like solution to why the people don't like, can't currently make money. They build up Madison Square Garden. He's like, well, your big solution is to not care and act like you don't care. Because, like, responding to people saying you don't care is, like, f***ing up all your money. <laughs> well, r- real yeah. quick, let's pause for station ID. You listen to WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. Uh, we're talking about Don Draper now. Uh, we, got, we got Ben Burgess and Scott. No, no, no. Uh, we're talking about um, essentially engaging with arguments. Um, even if the person is trying to persuade other people, taking them at least rhetorically at their word. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, like, like, like in a way, like this is a this is a cheesy metaphor, right? You know, but like, um, but you know, think about like if if you're uh, an environmental lawyer 
and 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 you're suing Monsanto and like the lawyer for Monsanto comes up with with some like legal argument that they use it's like okay if you're in that position it would clearly be true that they have a external motivation to make that argument. In fact, they're literally being paid by Monsanto to say that. Right. Uh, but that doesn't actually get you off the hook of having to come up with, with a response, right? Having to explain what's wrong with their legal argument. You got to beat them. Uh, if, if you want to win, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to beat them. Exactly. And so similarly, when you run into to one of these, these right-wing arguments, um, that um, then I think the reason, at least one reason why I do try to like take them seriously and engage with them. Like even sometimes when they come in from completely ridiculous sources. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, for Jordan example, Peterson comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan Peterson. Absolutely. Right. You know, like, like I've written and spoken a bunch about him and, and he's, you know, yeah. I mean, like he is uh, let's, let's, let's put it, let's put it this way. The, uh, they're, the, that particular lobster is definitely missing some claws, right? You know, like that's <laughs> like there's there's a lot taking, that's wrong with the uh, the source. What's he's that? He's been taking a lot of hits lately. <laughs> uh, he has, he has, and you know, and 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 and, and, and you know, and I I I I feel bad, right? Like I, I don't I I think that he's he's really been through the rigor as a human being, but also he is a best-selling author who has a lot of like really politically bad ideas, you know, that need to be responded to, right? So I I do mm-hmm. feel bad. For, for what he's gone through, but, right. uh, but also, but also I'm going to keep on pointing out why the things that he's told millions of people are true aren't right. right. He still has influence. Uh, and, um, or, or even like more ridiculous than that. Right. Like, mm-hmm. so, um, well, Nathan Robinson, who's normally based in uh, New Orleans, mm-hmm. uh, I think right now, I think maybe since the plague started, he's in Florida, I, I believe, right now with his, with yeah, his family, yeah, to be uh, with his family, yeah, good friend, right. good friend of the show, Nathan Robinson. Um, but yeah, yeah so, had, you're going to engage with one of the things that he had been saying recently. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, and Nathan and I actually co-wrote a review of Glenn Beck's book, arguing with socialists that's sure. out in the new issue of current affairs. I like the new print issue. I think it's being mailed out in the next couple of weeks or something, mm-hmm. but, uh, and the reason we did that, right. Uh, even though like Beck is a deeply silly person who, uh, who is not going to be convinced, you know, by anything that we say, right? Uh, like, 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 there's no scenario under which somebody mails that issue of current affairs to Glenn Beck, and you know, it's like, ah, oh, damn it, I was wrong, right? <laughs> now I need to endorse socialism. That's not going to happen. But it's important to be able to show exactly what's wrong with his argument, because uh, as much as we wish it were otherwise, right? Uh, there are lots of people who aren't necessarily unwinnable, right? Who are going to take that stuff seriously, right? Maybe we don't think they should, but that doesn't mean they don't. Uh, and certainly- I mean, there definitely is a, a case where like, like the more of that happens, like the, the lower his status gets because like people aren't just like not challenging these ideas because like, I mean, I think starting next week, they're gonna start broadcasting a show on like Home Shopping Network or something. Like he's like, where is he even yeah. at? <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the all-time Glenn Beck's like, like he's he was like prevalent in media for like two years. Yeah, yeah, he's not prevalent in media anymore. Like, like, yeah, he's definitely you know his career trajectory is is definitely on downward slope. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but also I think it's important that we have some sense of, uh, of perspective about this, right? That like, uh, yes, Glenn Beck is, uh, you know, thank the Lord is not uh, what he once was in terms of prominence, but um, I, well, I'd say that I'd like to know how many copies that argue with socialist books sold versus any book written by a socialist, but I actually don't want to know because it'd be too depressing, right? You know, that I, I, th I think even a past his peak, Glenn Beck, right, is still reaching many more people. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like the, the pundit you don't think about that's on like drive time conservative radio or something like that. Well, and, like, and, 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 it's a guy kind of under the radar, also kind of just like forming his own rhetoric and like distributing it over the airwaves and stuff. Right. And they have a system and they have a bunch of people who will, will, will do all they, they We're not giving them a platform by engaging with their argument is what we're saying here. It sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Well that, that's also right. Uh, that's yeah. That's also something that people often worry about, you know, giving them a platform. And again, I think in cases like uh, cases like the Glenn Beck thing, it's particularly a misguided, concern uh because somebody like glenn beck somebody like jordan peterson any of these people they've already got bigger platforms than any of us do right, right. like uh you know like like jordan peterson who you mentioned earlier like you know i i've seen people say oh why are you still bothering like responding to him you know like his his day is done whatever and then i what i always do is i always show them the screenshot of amazon's top 20 most purchased and read books in the last week mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, maybe it's not anymore, but up until very recently, it, it would, you know, 12 rules for life would always be there. And it would say something like, you know, 200th week on the list, you know, right. <laughs> it's like whatever it is, right. You know, like just because somebody isn't quite as culturally omnipresent, you know, as, as they used to be uh, like, let, let's put it this way to not to put too fine a point on it. I think that, um, I often find it pretty funny in a grim way when leftists who are right now this week reaching like 2% of the people that, you know, Jordan Peterson or Glenn Beck are reaching and say, Oh, why are you talking about those guys? <laughs> right. Right? You know, like they don't matter anymore. It's like, okay, if they don't matter, then we really, really don't matter. Right. Uh, so, but I think the more important thing is also like, Okay, like let's say I think with with somebody like you know these these reactionary figures like Beck or Peterson, uh, you're primarily um, you're primarily targeting not them, right? They're not going to come around. That's not going to happen, right? You know, but you're primarily targeting the persuadable people who are currently listening to them, mm -hmm. uh, and also especially when it's just like some random guy, right? You know that like. You know, when it's like, you know, I don't know, it's like your cousin on Facebook or something uh, or, you know, more likely like your cousin's friend who you end up arguing with. Uh, you know, so that's how often how that happens. Uh, just assuming, oh, they're making what I see as this really disingenuous right wing argument. Therefore, they're acting in bad faith. Therefore, fuck them. You know, right. whatever. Bleep that out, I guess. But the uh, I don't know if you could say that on the radio here or not, but, uh, you know, <laughs> therefore, forget them. Uh, like it's just because somebody is repeating an argument, right? Like doesn't mean that maybe even was originated in, you know, an insincere disingenuous source doesn't mean that they're being insincere about it. Uh, that clearly, 
you know, like that clearly doesn't follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so often in those cases, right, like, like, like even the person you're talking to, uh, you know, might, you know, eventually come around, right? Most people aren't going to come around in the moment, right? You know, that like, while they're actually arguing something, that's, that's, that's not a psychologically realistic idea of how persuasion works. Uh, because, you know, while you're in the middle of the, you know, 50 comment thread or whatever, wait. Yeah. It's like chemically impossible. It's like, like, like your brain yeah. literally has like you, 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 when you get angry, you start breathing short. You actually <laughs> like, you think differently and that's, and, and, and that's one of those sorts of things, right? Like, like that is not the time Yeah, you have to like cool down and then reflect on this sort of situation before you can even consider changing your mind. Oh, totally. Right. Like, so, so that's not what's going to happen, but, but my problem is that people will often jump from the correct premise that people aren't going to change their mind, except for maybe very rare situations while they're in the middle of arguing about something to the incorrect conclusion that therefore they're not going to change their mind. Right. Right. So, so first of all, if other people are reading it, right. Like those are probably mostly who you're talking to anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, worth keeping in mind. And I'm not saying I always keep, take my own advice here, right? You know, no. but like... We've all, that, we've all, know, that, we've all become uh, corn cobs on the timeline. We know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, all right, all of us, you know, Leahy was not, has, has never turned slowly into a corn cob, <laughs> uh, you know, cast the first snow stone, absolutely. But... Um, but it doesn't even mean that guy's not going to change his mind, right? Like mm-hmm. that, uh, that's sure. Like while you're in the middle of it, too much of your ego is at stake, but that doesn't mean that the argument itself has no effect on you. Uh, that, you know, certainly when I, I reflect on times that I've changed my mind about things, right. You know, it's, it's almost never in the middle, right. Of fighting with somebody about it. But what does happen is that, you know, maybe a week or a month or a year later, right. You find yourself thinking back to the topic and you realize that you've changed your mind, mm-hmm. right? You know, that like, because maybe something planted a seed and it kind of gnawed at you or, you know, like oftentimes, in fact, what I find really frustrated about this is that all, a lot of people on the left have, have absorbed this idea that it's like, oh, arguing with people who, who disagree politically is a waste of time because nobody ever changes their mind. And oftentimes, especially when I actually know the person who's making this, you know, this claim, like, come on, dude. Right, I know you. Right, you grew up in like a conservative evangelical household, uh, and then um, you became an atheist when you started watching Richard Dawkins videos when you were a teenager, <laughs> and and then you were like a regular MSNBC Democrat until 2016, and you supported Bernie, and then you joined the DSA, and now you're like halfway to Maoism, and you're going to tell me that nobody ever changes their mind, right? Uh, but like the crucial thing is, you know, of course we all change our minds, right? Like, like there's something very wrong with you if you never change your mind about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't typically just change our minds randomly, right? We have reasons, right? That like, that like there's, there's some consideration that now leads you to think something's true that didn't before. And some of that's about experience, but a lot of it's not right. Like, like as, as much as I'd like to be, you know, as, as much as it might be ideologically congenial for me to just be a hardcore materialist and say that people are always, responding to mere material conditions the obvious truth is that um people often change their mind without changes in material conditions yeah. changes in material conditions even when they do play a role 
they can go, you know, they can go in any number of different directions because people can draw wildly different political conclusions for the same changes in conditions. People would be so like, much more predictable if that was the case. That if everyone was a, if a like a like a functionally a Marxist, that would be so much more easy to organize people. It would, right? You know, I mean, but I mean, that's that's the whole problem, right? You know, like that's that's why, you know, that's why that's it's why been there's like, a superstructure. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Like that's why capitalism has existed for hundreds of years and we're still living under it because it's not that kind of automatic uh, process. Uh, and, and so I think the more realistic thing that actually happens is you think about uh, is that, you know, somebody says something you don't like, right. You know, argue for some conclusion that, that you have a bad instinctive reaction to um, you dismiss it, maybe even get angry about it in the moment. Right. Uh, and then especially if you got into it with them a bunch, so they have a chance to say a bunch of more stuff, things that, you know, that might get under your skin, then, you know, much later, sometimes much later, right. You know, then like you, you, when you find yourself thinking about the issue and again, you start to realize that some of the very considerations that you first dismissed now seem pretty powerful to you, right. Like after you kind of had a chime to, uh, to chew on them for a little while, right. Like, I mean, not, not that any of mine are like super interesting. Right. You know, but I mean, like I could certainly give you like several cases in my own life. Right. You know, when I've changed my mind about something in this way. And, and again, I think even a lot of the people that I know who are adamant that nobody changes their mind uh, because of arguments have in fact very clearly changed their mind because of arguments. And I guess just to like maybe end by kind of looping back right to, to what you, you know, your, your prompt. Right. I think that, uh, that the reason to at least respond to things as if they were offered in good faith, which mm-hmm. is not necessarily the same thing as not making a judgment about whether you think they were or not. Right. You know, go ahead and do that. Right. But the reason to, uh, to respond to things as if you were talking to somebody who was since like sincerely found them persuasive and needed to have it explained to them, you know, why, why it shouldn't be, uh, is one very often they are right Two, you know uh even if something seems ridiculous to you even if it is ridiculous that doesn't mean that nobody finds it persuasive again if everybody was just a rational machine who was good at dismissing you know bad arguments and accepting good arguments we wouldn't be in nearly the hole that we're in right now right. uh and oftentimes somebody having this stuff taken seriously and um, and having somebody engage with them about it actually is exactly what the doctor ordered as far as, as bringing them around. Also, even separately from you bringing them around, it's often very helpful, even just for yourself, even just to kind of get straight in your own head about what's true and why mm-hmm. to go through the exercise of explaining exactly what's wrong with the argument that we shouldn't have a higher minimum wage because then we'll all be replaced by robots or whatever it is however much you have an instinctive oh that's ridiculous yeah impulse and even even if that impulse is as it is in that case absolutely correct right it's still really useful to be able to explain i think the way uh you've put it uh jeffrey when we've talked about this before is is not just call it bullshit 
but uh, but drill down into why it's bullshit. Yeah, make them explain it. Make them go through the paces for what they're doing. Make them examine their own thinking. Because sometimes when you're especially talking to your cousin or whatever, you know they haven't really put too much thought about into it. And when you it, and again, you might not change their mind in a moment or anything, but at least you can get them to examine what they're thinking and why they're thinking it. Yeah. 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 No, that's abs- that's 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 absolutely right. Right. And and especially like if if the way that you're responding to them is uh, like all you're full of it. Like, yeah. Calling them an idiot, mm-hmm. you know, calling them, you know, bigot, calling them a dupe of, you know, whatever. All those things might be true. Right. Uh, right. But also that's exactly the response they're accepted. They're expecting. And in fact, it it feeds into their sense of um, the state of play, right? Like, like yeah. that's what they expect, and it actually confirms their narrative, you know, to yeah. to respond that way, right? You know, they like, do it to trigger the libs, and then if you get triggered, then they win. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? That's the game for them, right? Like that's and and that's what reassures them that they're speaking hard truths, and that you're just a hysteric who can't handle it. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas if you can actually like, and again, maybe sometimes you can't, right? Like they're, they're, it's, I'm, I'm not suggesting that anybody try to make themselves such a perfect person that, that they have it in them to respond this way all the time. And I don't think it's possible that you'd always, like that would always even be a good use of your, your time and energy. Mm-hmm. But, right, when you can, um, taking what they're saying seriously, right? And if possible, talking to them like you think they're a person, and, you know, and like kind of actually making them run through those paces, uh, you know, there's no guarantee of success, but uh, but it's just one of these things where you can't you can't win if you don't play. Mm-hmm. And if you just act as triggered as they want you to be, you're not playing. Exactly. Um, so thank you so much for uh, joining us, Ben. Where can we find more information about uh, what you're doing uh, some of your work. I know you're, you like we said at the top, you're a very busy guy. Uh, where can we find more about what you're up to? Sure. Uh, so it needs to be updated, but the easiest place to find the most of it, uh, is my website, which is just benburgess.com. So that's B E N B U R G I S.com. Uh, and you can, f- um, find there, for example, uh, the columns that I write for, for Jacobin, um, and, uh, and stuff that I write for other places. I mentioned the third rail, mm-hmm. uh, art, digital media. Uh, and, um, also, uh, I, uh, co-host with Adam Proctor and Brianna last, uh, a podcast called the dead pundit society. Uh, and I also have, uh, my own, uh, solo podcast, YouTube show called, uh, called give them an argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure actually, uh, when, uh, when is this episode going to be there? This should, this should come out on Tuesday. Uh, so a week from yesterday. Uh, Tuesday. Okay. Okay. Very good. So, uh, so, okay. So the one on Tuesday, when people are listening to this, uh, the episode of that, that, uh, that just came out, uh, will be one with, um, uh, Gene Bajalan, Eric Levitz, uh, Matt Crispin from Chapa Trap House, mm-hmm. and uh, Megan Day from Jacobin. Mm-hmm. And then the one they can look forward to the next week uh, is uh, going to be uh, Nathan Robinson in the first mm-hmm. half uh, talking about that article that I mentioned and kind of using that as a launching pad to 
uh, to get into like some of the other, you know, right wing ghouls that he's uh, he's he's written. Uh, <laughs> he's written about so about. many terrible people. <laughs> I, I don't know, know how he does and, it. I don't have the stomach for it. Yeah, yeah, and he'll he'll do these like ten thousand word articles about all of them. Uh, it's 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 definitely public service. <laughs> and then in the second half of that, this might have to get delayed because uh, because of some family medical issues. But assuming that it doesn't. In the second half of that, I am going to be uh, debating uh, Yaron Brook from the Ayn Rand Institute, uh, so I can uh, can look forward to that. You can find that um, uh, youtube.com slash Ben Burgess GTAA. Uh, so let's give them an argument, uh, or you know, just look up give them an argument on any of the standard yeah. podcast places. Yeah, there's YouTube video, all that good stuff. And you've also done some work with uh, Jacobin on their uh, stay-at-home series as well, which has been really fantastic. You had a good video on uh, on this subject of, of uh, Adolf Reed and, and that situation as well as uh, Jordan Peterson. So thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Uh, really appreciate it. You can uh, listen to Good Morning Comrade every Tuesday on WHIVFM. You can also get more information on our website, uh, goodmorningcomrade.com. You have been listening to Good Morning Comrade. This is WHIVFM New Orleans.